0: Father, the words of that song uh, so reveal our hearts. As we look about the world, we look at our own lives and we say, Father, how long? How long until you come again? Father, we do pray for strength in this world to face all that we have to face. We pray that you would give us courage. And encourage us, Father, knowing, Jesus, that You're coming again. But even while we ask for strength to deal with this life, we still long for You to come. And so, Father, as we sing how long, as we say how long, O Lord, we just pray You'd know, as we know You do, that it's the words of our heart crying out for our Father and calling out to truly find our home Lord, tonight, as Job cries out these very words, that You will, Lord, just respond to our cry of how long. And Father, if responding means You come get us tonight, that's cool. But if not, Lord, hear our hearts, hear our praise, hear our love. And teach us how to wait by the power of Your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 24, Job says, Why are times not stored up by the Almighty? And why do those who know Him not see His days? How long is what he's saying there? Why do those who know Him not see His days? In this journey of life, in this trip that we're on, Why don't we see the justice of the Lord and the righteousness? Why do we see all the injustices? And why is the world the way it is? And why, Lord, do You allow it to go on? Continually, why do You allow mankind to continue in rebellion? How long? I mean, that's probably the question asked by suffering saints more than any other question. And when you're down, and when you're discouraged, and when you're struggling through some traumatic life issue whatever it might be as you're dealing with that stuff that's the question that tends to rise up how long do I have to suffer through this why don't we just see your days I'm assuming a few of you have asked that question how long must we put up with all of it Job raised it four millennia ago and it will be asked again all the way up to the very end to just before the return of the king to set things right, people will still be asking how long. Even those who are in the presence of the Lord ask, how long? Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 tells us when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And when they cried out with a loud voice... They said, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? Uh, And this is a fascinating scene to me because this is uh, among those, these are who you could call tribulation saints. People who miss the catching up of the church, the calling home, and yet because of the incredible grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus, still can come to faith in Him. But by coming to faith in Him, they're martyred for it. The book of Revelation is very clear. If you wait until that day, well, there's all kinds of dangers with the whole idea of waiting. You might not make it at all. In fact, uh, several different pastors have, have made the statement, if you have trouble believing in Jesus in these days, why do you think you would believe in Him in those days? But these are people who have been slain for their faith, They're, they're trusting God. And they're the ones crying out. How long, Lord, until you avenge what happened to us? How long until there's justice? And I like this verse eleven, Revelation six. There was given to each of them a white robe, and they were you know probably like those hotel bathrobes, real comfy, soft ones. You know, just wrap up for a moment. Be peaceful. Be comforted. They were told they should rest for a little while longer until. The number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. What? We're crying out how long, and you're saying there's going to be more? More injustice? More martyrdom? More killing? More unfairness? Just wear the white robe, be at rest. Job wonders this same thing. Why do those who know him not see his days? Why don't we see the vindication of righteousness? The heart cry for justice actually isn't limited only to Christians. It's a basic uh, plea of humanity. The cry for justice. It's why you can't go to a movie and tolerate the bad guy for long. It's why even if it's bloody, people will sit in a movie theater when the bad guy gets blown to bits, we all go, yeah! And then, you know, you repent later. Because we cry for justice. We want to see what's right. Little children want to see what's right, what's fair. It's one of the, one of the favorite cries of small children, and I'm not going to blame any of my kids because they never say this. That's not fair! You know? It's not fair! C.S. Lewis part of the reason he came to faith those of you who don't know he struggled for a long time with agnosticism if not downright atheism but he started thinking in his head and his own atheistic mindset and he began saying if there's no God how did I get this idea of right and wrong in the universe? if there's no God why do I even think about justice as an option? how'd that get in there? And so believer and non-believer alike, we all cry out for justice. That's what Job is crying out for. Justice! I'm not seeing it, Lord. And this question fuels an exploratory journal or journey that Job is about to take through country and through the city. And he's going to expose the wickedness that's in the world all round about. And at the same time, he's basically... Saying everything that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, his three friends, he's saying, you know what? It's all bunk, what you guys have said. Because I look around me and I don't see justice for the righteous and and punishment for the wicked, as they said. I see injustice. I see good people uh, dealing with bad things. And it's not fair. And so Job is going to wonder all the while why God seems to ignore all of this injustice in the world. That's backdrop for the rest of the chapter. And on into the other chapters tonight. Verse two. He's in the country now. Sin in the country, as Job sees it. Some remove the landmarks. He means the boundary marks. I once had a neighbor who did that. Had a very definite pole in the corner of some property that Cheryl and I owned. And I came out there one day to discover the neighbor moving the mark over. I'm like, is this all you have to do with your time? Is it that? If you want that extra foot, it's yours. Have at it. Enjoy it. Have a barbecue there. Yeah. But this is what Job is saying. People go around and they remove landmarks to try and expand their own property at the expense of someone else. That's not fair. They seize and devour flocks. And in some translations it's not devour, it's just pasture. They seize and they take flocks away from other people. Job sees this going on. They drive away the donkeys of the orphans. They would even steal from a fatherless child. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. That is for collateral. Okay, I'll give you some money, widow smith. But you're going to have to give me something in return. I need that ox of yours. Well, well, the ox happens to be her livelihood. And Job is saying, that's not fair. They push the needy aside from the road... The poor of the land are made to hide themselves altogether. Behold, as wild donkeys in the wilderness, they go forth seeking food in their activity, as bread for their children in the desert. They harvest their fodder in the field and glean the vineyard of the wicked. What they're saying is these are poor people struggling, hurting, and they're out there just trying to survive goes on and says, They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering against the cold. They are wet with the mountain rains and hug the rock for want of a shelter. Others snatch the orphan from the breast and against the poor they take a pledge. Job says it's not just the widow's ox that wicked men take for collateral. It's the widow's child who's torn away from poor mama who can't afford her debt. And Job is painting this awful picture of depravity in the country. And John Denver said life on the farm is kind of laid back. But Job says, "Uh uh-uh. You can move out to the country, but guess what? You're going to find sin there. You're going to find evil there. You're going to find wickedness there. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing. And they take away the sheaves from the hungry. Within the walls, they, now talking about poor people, produce oil and they tread wine presses, but thirst. In other words, those who are wealthy and well-off and wicked are forcing you know labor on poor, impoverished people and not giving them their due wages. And this is all happening... Out in the country, these poor, honest country folk are being exploited, Job says. This is what I see. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar have repeatedly declared, the righteous get the goods and the wicked get waylaid, and Job says, that is not what I have observed. And I think we probably could agree with Job if our eyes are open. That's not the way it is. Good people don't get the goods. Bad people don't get the bad everybody kind of gets a little bit of everything and so Job says, Lord, how are you allowing this to go on? I I see this. Well, then Job leaves the country and he arrives in Sin City. Verse 12. From the city men groan and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not pay attention to folly. There's horrible stuff going on here and Lord, where are you? How come I don't see you responding to all of this summer of 1998? I took a group of students in our youth ministry to the Center for Student Missions in Los Angeles, California, which wasn't actually too far from where we lived, and yet the distance in terms of what we saw was light years. Because we spent the week working in inner-city L.A. in some of the worst places possible. What's interesting about L.A., and it's different than here on North Whitby Island, or Anacortes or Oak Harbor, it's very different. At night, when the planes aren't flying, it's very quiet. Love it. I love it. In fact, Cheryl and I got into a big argument a couple of years ago because she wanted a waterfall outside our bedroom window and this this noise. And I'm like, we're in a place where there's finally no noise and you want noise. I've adjusted. We have a waterfall now. (laughs) But in the city, and for me growing up in Southern California, to come up here the first time was amazing because it was so quiet. There is a constant, if you've ever been there or lived there, you know this, there's a constant buzz. The noise never stops. There in inner city L.A. at the Center for Student Missions, we went out one night in vans. We were told we had to stay in the vans. We could roll down the windows, but we had to stay in the vans, and the vans would keep moving. And they took us to Skid Row. And we drove through Skid Row. We spent about an hour just slowly kind of driving the streets. And it was one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen. People living in boxes. This is in L.A., We're not talking about Tijuana, we're not talking about a third world country, places where you would expect it, but people up and down the streets in boxes, people doing drugs as we went by, people, you know, prostitutes turning tricks. I mean, it was just, it was mind-boggling. And as we drove through that, watching and seeing all this stuff, and the sound, I think, was probably more horrifying to me than anything else. Because there was a moaning that you could just hear. Every now and then you can hear someone crying out. There, there was pain there. And, and when Job says, From the city men groan and the souls of the wounded cry out, I think, wow, it's still going on. We still hear that today. The pain of wickedness and evil in the world. Job says others, or they have been, with those who rebel against the light. They do not want to know its ways, nor abide in its paths. Then he says, note this, The murderer arises at dawn. He kills the poor and the needy. And at night night he is the thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me. And he disguises his face. Job mentions three different types of wickedness here. The murderer, the thief, and the adulterer. Murderer, thief, adulterer. As Job muses about these things, I began to think about them. I actually went online and, and I, I looked up violent crimes. And I was thinking, you know, as an example, I might, I might bring an example of a recent violent crime. I, I read through two or three and it, and it turned my stomach and I said, you know, I guess we don't need that example. <laughs> so I'm sparing you hearing about some of the stuff that has gone on recently that is just sick. It's horrific. Jesus said in Matthew 24:12, because lawlessness is increased... Most people's love will grow cold. There's a numbness that Jesus says is on the rise in the last days. Number of murders in the United States for 2009. 16,204. In one year, in America, 16,204 individual people were murdered in our country alone by the way compare that and I think this is interesting 16,204 murders to the total number of executions by capital punishment 42 there's a disparity here number of thefts or robberies and and this includes Grand Theft Auto 3,818,608 in 2009 in our country and we have no statistics for adulteries You know when most of this takes place? At night. In the dark. When no one can see what's going on. Job says, verse 16, In the dark they dig into houses. They shut themselves up by day. They do not know the light. That's the problem. For the morning is the same to him as thick darkness. He is familiar with the terrors of thick darkness. Job expresses the trouble with darkness so long ago, and you might be tempted to say nothing has changed since then. Nothing's changed. The world is still a dark place. Well, something has changed. One thing. Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 tells us that leaving Nazareth, Jesus came and He settled in Capernaum which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. He quotes, Matthew does, from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The people have seen a great light. So what happened, what's changed since Job's day is that in the midst of that darkness, a light has dawned. The great light came into the world. John 1, verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The light. And you know, we need the light. We need the filling of the light of Jesus Christ. Don't we? I mean, isn't that why you're here tonight? Yeah. Corey and I have been converse- having conversations just about, about how, how we live life. And, and I'm sure you've heard the example of the, of the white dog and the black dog. And the, they're fighting dogs. The white dog representing um, spirituality or, or the, the way of the spirit, the black dog representing sin and darkness. And these two dogs will fight each other. And the reality is the dog that you feed is the dog that will win. Feed the white dog. And it actually doesn't have to be the white dog cuz we have two black dogs out here that are precious. So let's flip it. Feed the black dog. Whatever your favorite dog is, you know I just don't want to offend anybody's black or white dog, but whatever dog you feed is the dog that will win. Feed the spirit. Fill the spirit with the light of Jesus Christ and you will walk eyes wide open in the light. Feed the Spirit with things that are dark and you will walk in darkness. It's very simple. Jesus said this is the judgment, John 3.19, that the light has come into the world... But men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. That's what Job is talking about. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. And it's kind of like after worship, you know, we have it dim in here just to, to kind of keep all other distractions out as we're worshiping, as we're singing, and then the lights go on and we all kind of go, you know, rub the eyes. Well, those who live in darkness don't like that. It's too bright. And so they prefer just to stay in the darkness. Jesus says, John 3.21, He who practices the truth comes to the light, so his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God, which simply means you walk in the light so people can see, wow, it really isn't you, it's Jesus in you. It's the power of His Spirit that is shining in your life. And so Jesus said, John 8.12, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul brings it together for us as followers in these last days. He says, 1 Thessalonians 5.4, You, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. And a great question to ask as we walk in this life about any decision that we make is, Is this something I can do in the light of day? Or does it need the cover of darkness? Jeff and I were talking about uh, the building over on Troxel and, and actually having for once a church office. And the question came up, you know, men and women alone in the church office. And it is a concern of mine because the standard that we have for our church staff is no man and, and woman are alone together unless they're married. You know, So we don't go one-on-one. Staff members or or, or with individuals, we avoid that just to avoid not only the appearance of evil, but any possible indiscretion. But so you have this church office, what do you do? And Jeff said, Well, we just put cameras everywhere. (laughs) And you know what? I thought I laughed like you did, and I went, You know, why not? What do we have to hide? What does anybody working in a church office have to hide? We'll keep the cameras out of the bathrooms, but everywhere else. (laughs) Walking in the light. If I can't do it in the light, if I can't be open and honest and straightforward about what I'm doing in the light, then i got to question, what am I doing? Should I be doing it at all? Now, verse 18, Job, after saying all these things, you almost sense his, his musing, his mental journey begins to mount to some frustration. He moves from these observations to real marked condemnations of the wicked. And, and I want you to note this again. This is one of those grammatical things it's a little harder to track but he's not saying this is the way it is what Job is saying is this is the way it should be this is the way it should be verse 18 they are insignificant on the surface of the water their portion is cursed on the earth they do not turn toward the vineyards or at least that's the way it should be for those who are godless and wicked what does he mean insignificant on the sur- surface of the water that word insignificant literally means light or swift let talking about like foam You know, wicked people, sin, it's like foam on the water, and Job is saying, man, may he just be washed away. May the fruit of their vineyards be cursed, so that when you go to your vineyard, there's no fruit there, there's nothing to eat. He says in verse 19, Drought and heat consume the snow waters, and so does Sheol, those who have sinned, or that's how it should be, Hear the frustration in him. A mother will forget him. And the worm feeds sweetly till he is no longer remembered. I love that. The worm feeds sweetly. And wickedness will be broken like a tree. Verse 21. He wrongs the barren woman and does no good for the widow. Job is crying out, Justice! Justice! May the wicked get their just desserts. May they be forgotten. May they be broken. May they be worm food. Now this is interesting to me. Because up until now, Job has been decrying his own situation. Up until this point, Job has been calling out for justice for himself. Suddenly, something has happened here in Job. And he's saying, there's injustice for the whole world. And it's right not right that the poor will be taken advantage of that the widow is ripped off, that the orphan is hurt. man what about them? I really you're seeing something of faith rise up in job because faith has a tendency to turn our eyes off of ourselves and on to other people. And we're going to talk about that more I believe Sunday morning. but in the midst of his pain, job recognizes it's not all about him. And as the focus shifts off of himself, he becomes less of a victim and more of one who stands up for those who are victims. And it's a good place to be. One of the best ways to deal with our own depression and despair, if you're struggling, the best things you can do is get your eyes off your own situation and get your eyes on seeking the good of someone else. Involve yourself in service. Engage in some form of ministry where you're helping and encouraging and uplifting others and you'll be amazed at how your problems tend to kind of shrink away and they're not as big as maybe you thought they were. Paul says in Galatians six two, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And I thought about this. Jesus, in that famous verse, said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Matthew 11.29 But listen again to what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me from me. What he's saying is hook up to me and let's walk together so you can see how I do it. And you can begin to do the things that I do. If I go over here while well, you're yoked up to me, you're coming with me. If I go over there, here we go together. Learn from me, walk with me, but it also means that Jesus is offering to harness himself to you that he might carry your burdens along with you. That he might take them off your shoulder and take the lead himself. And that's His character, isn't it? And that's how Jesus is. He, he wants to walk and carry your burdens. My burdens. Matthew 8.16 tells us, When evening came, they brought Him many who were demon-possessed, and He cast out the spirits with a word. And He healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through, the, through Isaiah the prophet. He Himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Because that's what Jesus does. And that's what He calls us to do. Get our eyes off ourselves yoke ourselves up to someone else who's hurting and carry their burden. Walk with them. Encourage them. Now after Job says what should happen to the wicked, he continues to say, this is what appears to be going on. Verse 22, but he drags off the valiant by his power. Now he's talking about God. Saying good, valiant, strong, courageous people get dragged off. He rises, but no one has assurance of life. Which is interesting that Job would say that. He rises. Is there something prophetic in that? Is Job indicating? Maybe not even recognizing it and understand this. A lot of the Old Testament prophets didn't even realize what they were saying or at least didn't understand God would give them a word and they'd speak it and they'd they'd kind of go, what does that mean? Well, you just spoke it, Isaiah. Yeah, but I don't get it. You will. Job says he rises. But no one has assurance of life. He provides them, that is wicked people, with security, and they're supported. And his eyes are on their ways. See, he sees what's going on. He sees what they're doing. But Job's saying, Where's the blessed assurance? The wicked seem supported and secure, even though you see what's going on, Father. Verse 24 They are exalted a little while, and then they're gone. Moreover, they are brought low and like everyone gathered up, even like the heads of grain, they are cut off. He says, okay, granted, wicked people die like everyone else, but it still doesn't seem fair in the immediate. I can hope that the wicked will just die off, but for now, I see them all around, and it doesn't seem right, it doesn't seem fair. I get that same thought sometimes. And perhaps you do. But understand, Job is not saying that God isn't fair or that God is blind to suffering and injustice, he's just saying, I don't get it. He's saying, Lord, I don't understand. I know you must see what's going on. So why do you let it continue? In verse 25, he now returns, looks back at his friends, comes back from his little middle journey here, and he says, Now if this is not so, who can prove me a liar and make my speech worthless? Bildad. Bildad. Bildad belches out a brief bellow of belligerent baloney. <laughs> then Bildad the Shuhite answered, Dominion and awe belong to him who establishes peace in his heights. Is there any number to his troops? And upon whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be just with God? Or how can, a, can he be clean who is born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm. And that's all Bildad says. It's brief, it's short, like Bildad himself. Remember, the Shuhite. That's all he gets in. He just kind of burps out this, how dare you talk about God like that? And by the way, the inference is, you maggot, you son of a you worm. Bildad has now resorted to calling Job names. You know who else was compared to a worm? The son of man, right? In fact, it's an interesting choice of words, Bildad. He says, and the son of man. That worm. The son of man... That worm. Jesus referred to Himself as the Son of Man 88 times in the Gospels. It was His favorite self-designation. More than any other thing, when Jesus was talking about Himself or referring to Himself prophetically, He said, Son of Man. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Over and over, this was His word for Himself. And what's interesting is prophetically, Psalm 22, verse 1, in that great psalm of the crucifixion, And I encourage you, if you've never read through it, read through it. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So right there we recognize that's what Jesus said on the cross. Why did he say that? Because he's calling attention to Psalm 22 as his psalm. The Messianic, prophetic psalm. And in verse 6 it says, I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. I am a worm. The Son of Man is a worm. And Bildad says that about Job. Son of Man, you worm. Some of you Bible students have heard this and I was going to pass by it, but it's just so fascinating. The Hebrew word for worm here is tola or tolat. And it also is translated scarlet or crimson. Because the Tola worm, in ancient times, they would grind up these little worms. And in grinding them up, once that happened, they literally would use the grinded bodies of these worms as red dye for fabric. Scarlet dye. It's one of the ways that they went about getting the colors in ancient fabrics. The New International Bible Encyclopedia talks about this Tola worm. It's it's called the, the Cermis Vermilio, scientific name for it. And it says this, I quote, The females adhere themselves to an oak tree, deposit their eggs underneath themselves, and remain there to protect the eggs. Then, when the eggs hatch, they find their sustenance as they eat through her body. When they're done, they leave nothing but a crimson spot on the tree, the tola worm. That's the worm. That's the word that Dad uses here. That's the word Jesus uses prophetically, the psalmist in Psalm 22, I'm a worm and not a man. That's the word throughout Scripture, and sometimes it's even translated just scarlet or crimson if it's referring to the color. But the spot, and it's interesting, that's on the tree, that crimson spot will dry in the sun and turn white and then flake off like snow. I mean, the picture is dramatic and stunning. One that would, that would bring birth. We're born again. And when we're born again, what does the Son of Man, what does that worm, Jesus, invite us to do? Eat my flesh and drink my blood and you will have life in yourselves. And what else happens? Well, that scarlet. What does He say? Come now, Isaiah 118, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white. As snow, though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. And so this is the word Bildad uses. Does he have any idea what he's talking about? I highly doubt it. But that the Son of Man, that worm. It's interesting because Bildad, right before that, asked this question: How can a man be justified before God? How is it possible that any man could stand and be righteous before God? As Job, you're claiming to be, you worm. I'll tell you how. A man can be justified before God by the Son of Man, that worm, Jesus Christ. As, as one commentator put it, the man, the God who became a man, who became a lamb, who became a worm. Describing Jesus. Well, Job gets right back in Bildad's belligerent face. Verse 1, chapter 26. Then Job responded, What a help you are to the weak! How you have saved the arm without strength! What counsel you have given to one without wisdom! What helpful insight you have abundantly provided! (laughs) To whom have you uttered words, and whose spirit was expressed through you, and Bildad is effectively silenced. We will not hear another word from him. Finally, the last of the friends shuts up. One by one, all four friends are effectively silenced as truth overtakes deception and wisdom outlasts stupidity. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job. Job himself, we will see, come to a point of being silenced as the wisdom of God begins to speak to him. But notice this. Job asked Bildad in that phrase there in verse 4, whose spirit was expressed... Through you. The implication is not God's. I don't know where you're getting your information. I don't know where your attitude is coming from. I don't know where this language is is protruding from. But whose spirit are you speaking from, man? You proclaim to be a messenger from God, you religious man? And yet what's coming out of your mouth is not of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 14.3 tells us, One who prophesies speaks to men for Edification, exhortation, consolation, and a brutal bashing. No, it doesn't say that. It's encouragement and strength and comfort. That's what Paul said. That's what the prophet brings. Now, it may convict and it may be challenging, but it will also be and always be edifying, building up, bringing someone, calling someone, inviting someone closer to Jesus. That is someone who speaks by the Spirit of God. And, and we need to mark this and understand it. There's a simple question you can ask if someone claims to be coming to you with a word from the Lord. Simple question. Is there fruit on their breath? What does a breath smell like? Is it fruitful? Do you detect a hint of love, a note of joy, the scent of peace, the smell of patience, and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit? Job is saying, Bildad, your breath stinks. Says spirit. Well, yeah, spirit is breath in the Hebrew. Whose breath is expressed through you? Whose spirit? What's coming out of your mouth? Man, Bildad, you need a juicy fruit. That's what he's saying. (laughs) Now, Job, as though explaining to his friends that his rant was not against God, he takes up in the next few verses the greatness of God. Watch this. Verse 5. The departed spirits, or interestingly, the Rephaim, those of you who have studied these things, you know Rephaim refers to, well, Goliath was a Rephaim. refers to rather large people, giants, relatives, distant relatives of the Nephilim from back in Genesis 6. And you can track that through and, and take a look at that if you're curious about that, where they come from, what was involved with that. It's a fascinating story. But the departed spirits, Rephaim, tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before Him, and Abaddon, or destruction, has no covering. So the first thing that he says, there are seven things that Job's going to point out about God here in these few verses. And the first thing is that God is greater than death. He's greater than death. He is above it. Naked is Sheol before Him, and Abaddon has no covering. The second thing, God is greater than outer space. Verse 7, He stretches out the north, over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. I love that Job wrote that four thousand years ago, and science just figured it out a couple hundred, three hundred years ago. And third thing: God is greater than the atmosphere. He wraps up the clouds, the, the, the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. This the Job is saying. It's just fantastic to me <laughs> that it works like that, and God does this. He's bigger than that. He's greater than that tells us in in verse 9, the fourth thing, that God is greater than light and darkness. He obscures the face of the full moon, talking about a lunar eclipse there, or a solar eclipse, and spreads His cloud over it. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. So God's greater than light and darkness. By the way, that's interesting, that phrase. He has has, uh, inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters. What is that? Job is describing the curvature of the earth. You stand out on a beach on a clear day and you look out on the water and it curves, doesn't it? He's saying there's something amazing here that I'm seeing and the earth is not flat, says Job 4,000 years ago, and the earth does not rest on the back of a turtle, which some cultures actually believed. There's a curvature there. A curvature and And this ball that we all live on is is hanging on the midst of nothing in space. God has done this. And again, science is finally caught up. Job says, this is what's going on. And God is greater than all this. Verse 11. He says, the pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at His rebuke. He's talking about mountains. Pillars of heaven. Those mountains that would go up high and, and literally hold the heavens up or look like they do. And he says, He quieted the sea with His power and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. So God is greater than mountains and sea, and you could even extend that to say God is just greater than all creation. I mentioned this before, I'll point it out to you again. Rahab. It's not Rahab the harlot that he's talking about there. She hasn't come around yet. And it's not a location that he's talking about. It's a myth. It is a Babylonian creation myth about a God, little G, named Rahab, who created the world. And that was taught among pagans even in Job's day. And Job is saying, by his understanding, he shattered Rahab. In other words, God's greater than evolution. God's greater than all other myths about how the world came to be. No, He is Creator. There is no Rahab. No, God is the great and mighty Creator. He's over all this. By His breath, verse 13... The heavens are cleared or literally are made beautiful. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpents. Behold, these are the fringes of His ways. In other words, I'm just barely touching His ways here. I'm not even giving the full picture. We're just kind of touching on it briefly. These are the fringes of His ways and how faint a word we hear of Him but His mighty thunder who can understand. So all these things, He's greater than death, greater than outer space, atmosphere, greater number four than light and dark, greater than the mountains and the sea greater number 6 than the heavens the heavens talking about by his breath the heavens are cleared verse 13 and he's greater note this than evil job mentions two symbols of evil he mentions rahab which would be an evil uh, pagan idea of things and the serpent nachash in the hebrew the serpent both pictures of evil god's greater God's greater than all this. By the way, did you catch the glimpses of Jesus in this description of God? There are at least four that that I count. He mentions in verse 12 the quieting of the sea. God who quiets the sea. Mark chapter 4 verse 39. Jesus quieted the sea. Literally. Literally. He mentions, and I like this in verse 14, the fringes of his way. And I read the word fringe and immediately think about the hemorrhaging woman who reached out and by faith touched the fringe, the hem of Jesus' robe, and was instantaneously healed. He mentions in verse 14, well, he says this, this is great. Who can understand his mighty thunder? Let me read something to you here. Who can understand his mighty thunder? John chapter twelve in verse twenty. John twelve twenty, and it tells us that there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast in Jerusalem. Okay, so non Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, and these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they began to ask him, saying, "Sir, we wish to see Jesus, and a Jewish rabbi, you know." the hope of the Jews we've heard about we want to we want to see him can we see him too i know we're greeks and so philip came verse 22 and told andrew andrew and philip came and told jesus and jesus answered them saying the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified why would he say that what is it about some greeks wanting to see jesus that makes jesus say the hour has come because jesus is saying we are right on the verge of the times of the gentiles My hours come. Now we have gone beyond Israel. Now the Gentiles are showing interest and the timing is perfect. And by the way, Jesus knew it would be. He had it set up that way. His death on the cross at age 32-33, man, that was not by accident. That wasn't happenstance. He planned it that way. John especially shows us of all the Gospel writers, he was in complete control of the whole thing all the way up to his final breath where he said, It is finished and so he knew what was going on and the whole plan the whole waiting the whole preparation and now the time has come where the word is trickled out it's spread out and the Greeks are coming the Gentiles are coming we want to see Jesus the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified he says truly truly I say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone but if it dies it bears much fruit no doubt beyond Israel bearing fruit even among the Greeks who want to see Jesus he who loves his life, Jesus says in verse 25, will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, anyone, do you Greek, He must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. But he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? (laughs) No, for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Now watch this. Then a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Thundered. Others were saying, An angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. The voice that thunders. God's voice was heard as though it were thunder. That thunderous voice. The book of Revelation, by the way, talks about the seven thunders. And you can track that. In fact, again, no time right now. Jot that down in your notes. Check out thunder in the Bible and what it teaches me about Jesus. It's amazing. Back in Job, we see the quieting of the sea, the fringes of His way. Who can understand His mighty thunder? And this one, I think the most obvious in verse 13. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Jesus' hands were pierced that the serpent might flee. Jesus' hands were pierced. It's slightly different than what Job speaks here. There was a piercing of the hand. The hand of Christ that the serpent would flee. Psalm 22.16, Isaiah 53, verse 5, John 19.37, all talking about His piercing. And as He is pierced, and our faith in Him, the serpent, the evil one, that old devil Satan, flees. Chapter 27, continuing on. Then Job continued his discourse. And he said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has embittered my soul, for as long as life is in me, and the breath or spirit of God is in my nostrils. It's that Hebrew word ruach. Anytime you see spirit or breath, it's ruach. It's the same word my lips certainly will not speak unjustly nor will my tongue mutter deceit far be it from me that I should declare you right till I die I will not put away my integrity from me again he's speaking to his three friends you've tried to say I'm a sinner you've tried to say it's my wickedness that has caused all this problem and I'm telling you guys I am standing by my story I'm sticking to it my integrity I have not done wrong that I should deserve this punishment This cannot be a disciplinary action because I didn't do anything to deserve this. I will hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. And by the way, I would encourage you to do the same. Hold fast your righteousness. What do you mean? Hold on to Jesus because Jesus is your righteousness. You hold fast to that. You hold fast to Him. And if people try to see you as anything other, man... You turn back to Jesus. You cling to Him. Hold fast your righteousness. Do not let it go. And Job says, My heart does not reproach any any of my days. At, At this point, Job gets so emphatic, he takes an oath. He says, As God lives. man, you don't do that in the Middle East unless you're serious. You take an oath, using the name of the Lord, an oath by God, as God lives, I will not let go of my righteousness. This is serious, serious business. Verse seven he says, May my enemy be as the wicked, and my opponent as the unjust. Remember Job has just described what should happen to the unjust. They should go down to Sheol and never come up. They should be judged and mightily. God should come down harsh on them. Their vineyard shouldn't produce fruit. They should lose everything. Bad things should happen to the unjust. And now Job says, and this is a very dramatic and serious moment, May my enemy be as the wicked and my opponent as the unjust. Right now, who is Job's opponent? Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. This is one of the harshest and sharpest moments for these four friends. Their friendship is at the breaking point. And remember we talked about this weeks ago. One of the concerns of God, and we see this at the end of the book, is for these four friends to be restored in their relationship. Because God is all about relationships. And this is a, a difficult moment because, you know, there's that time, and, and perhaps it's happened, where you're in a friendship, a relationship with someone, and you're angry, you're upset, you're at crosshairs with each other, and all of a sudden you say something and you can't get it back. It's out there now. And in your heart and in your head, you hope beyond hope. Oh, Man, I hope we can get back where we were before we said these things. That's where Job is. And that's where his three friends are. And they're just at loggerheads over all this. Job's back is up. J. Vernon McGee points this out, and it's very wise. Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar, these three friends came to comfort and encourage Job. As time went on and they began to look at Job and talk to other people and think this through, they began to say, this guy's got sin. That's the only answer. That's what their theology kept telling them. He has to have sinned. And so they take it upon themselves to force the issue with Job. They take it upon themselves, and sometimes we can do this as Christians. i got to bring conviction into her life. I need to speak conviction to him so he'll change his ways. And the problem is oftentimes when we try to speak conviction to somebody, it just gets their back up. They get more defensive. They get like an animal cornered. They snap back. It doesn't work. What I'm saying here is that this should teach us something. It is not our place to bring conviction. It's not my job. Oh yes, to speak truth. Yes, to bring the Word of God but it is not my place to try to force conviction on another person. And you might say, "Well, but ultimately Job repents, so it worked. No, no, it didn't. All the words of his friends did was make him angry, and more angry until finally he is just looking at them and he's calling them his enemy. It's the words of God that bring Job to repentance. And what I'm saying is it's not our role It's His role. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, John 16, 7, It's to your advantage I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now listen to this. Concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. Now, and I, I pause there because there's a specific thing Jesus says. The Spirit, the Spirit doesn't condemn. The Spirit convicts. And again, if someone comes to you saying, I have a word by the Spirit of God to share with you, or, or God's told me to tell you something, and what they tell you is condemning, i got to question if it came from God at all. It may convict. You may have a friend who loves you and just shares a word out of compassion and love, and, and you walk away in your heart going, wow, i got to think about that. But if you walk away going, man, that hurt, <laughs> good chance it's not from the Lord. The Spirit does this in such a way that lasting change comes into our lives. He has a way of reaching into us with kindness. And it's the kindness of God, Paul says, Romans 2.4, that leads us to repentance. But listen again, what Jesus said. What is the one sin, the one single sin that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of? Jesus said, concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. That's the sin he comes to convict of. Fascinating. It, he doesn't come to convict the world of cussing. When the Spirit comes, he will convict all of you with a foul mouth. Doesn't say that. He doesn't come to convict the world, or convict those who smoke or chew, or smoke, or drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. That's not what it's about. But in evangelical America, in the church, we have taken on issues of morality to try to convict the world of. Not that we shouldn't be, you know, bothered by some of the incredible immorality in our world. Not that you shouldn't walk out of a movie if the language is is bad and you're. You know, or the violence or the sexuality. Not, not that we should tolerate those things, but, but we choose those easy things to take shots at, you know? Your immoral life. Well the Holy Spirit doesn't come to convict people of their immoral life. He comes to convict them concerning sin because they do not believe in Jesus. In other words, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is Jesusless living. And that's huge. Because it's Jesusless living that breeds all these other things, and we're focusing on all these other things, and the Spirit says, "No, I just want to convict them to believe in Jesus." Because if someone will come to faith in Jesus Christ, all those other things begin to not be as tasty as they were before. Sometimes the language just—I oh, I wish I could not say this—and there begins to be an alteration, a change in who we are. We're not an army. We're not like Job's friends. We're not to be on the attack against the sin of the world. We're not an army. We're ambassadors for Christ. Bringing the gospel, the good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because the sin that will keep, that will keep people estranged from Jesus is unbelief. And that's what the Spirit comes to convict people of. Well, Job now proclaims the outcome of Jesusless, godless living. Verse 8. What is the hope of the godless when he is cut off, when God requires his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call on God at all times? I will instruct you in the power or literally the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen this. All of you have seen it. Why then do you act foolishly? All that I've described to you, Job, is saying to his friends, you've seen this too. You know about the injustice I'm talking about. Why are you ignoring that? And he says, This is the portion of a wicked man from God and the inheritance which tyrants receive from the Almighty. And then he goes on this litany of things. Listen. Though his sons are many, they are destined for the sword. And his descendants will not be satisfied with bread. In other words, as you act, you're passing it along to your kids. Your sin is going to be visited on the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. What you do is just going to keep on going. Wickedness is passed on. Verse 15, he says, His survivors will be buried because of the plague, and their widows will not be able to weep. Though he piles up silver like dust and prepares garments as plentiful as the clay, oh he may prepare it, but the just will wear it. <laughs> and the innocent will divide the silver. Job's saying, There is justice, and it's gonna come, and we may not see it now, but it is gonna come. He has the wicked person, the godless person, the Jesusless person, has built his house like a spider's web, or as a hut which the watchman has made. He lies down rich, but never again. He opens his eyes, and it is no longer. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away, and he's gone. It whirls him away from his place. It will hurl at him without sparing. He will surely try to flee from its power. Men will clasp their hands at him, and will hiss him from his place. Does any of that sound familiar? What's interesting that Job does here is nearly every phrase he uses to describe the wicked and the godless from verses 14 through 23, every phrase is repeated. These are direct quotes from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And you go back and look them up. He says something that's almost line for line, things that they said that they tried to push onto him, and he's turning it around. And he's saying, the godless will have the very outcome that you're saying I have, or should have. It's coming. And it's coming for you. <laughs> it's one of those things where you, know, you see two people going head to head, and you just go, oh, I'm just walking away. <laughs> I mean, this is very severe. This is the outcome of the godless. Job is turning the tables. All these things you dumped on me, man, they're coming around. Be careful, guys. They are coming around to you. There's a difference, however, between what Job is saying of his friends and what his friends had said of him. And the difference is this. Job's friend's definition of godlessness is someone who is wicked and sinful. Job's definition is more true. His definition of godlessness is someone who is without God. Now, that may not seem too distinct, but listen again. His friends say that godlessness is someone who is wicked and sinful. Job says godlessness is someone who is without God. What are you saying? You can be religious and be godless. You can be a good person and be godless. You can do all the right things and be as righteous as humanly possible and be without God. It's part of what we see in the world. People doing good things for good reasons, with good motives, and good outcome, and yet they're godless. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, you guys have this theology that says godlessness is wickedness. Not necessarily... Hey, I am, Let me just put it this way. I'm a godly man, but I can be awfully wicked. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, I have a relationship with Jesus because on my own, it's a mess. You know what I'm talking about. Not with me, with you. (laughs) We all know. And that's why the relationship with Jesus is so absolutely critical outside of that relationship, outside of believing in Him, what the Spirit convicted us of at one point in our lives. Convicted us of sin because we weren't believing in Jesus and so we came to believe in Jesus. Then outside of that, the ultimate outcome for the wicked and the godless is the same. A good godless person and a wicked godless person both are going to face this outcome. Job is saying, see, that's the deal. It's whether or not you know God. That's what matters. We need to know Jesus. And Jesus said... John 10.7 Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. I read that verse just today and went, ah, It sounds so good. In fact, I read it at a time today. I needed to read it. I'm the door and anyone who enters through me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. And I just went, But there's a question that's still hanging out there. But how long? I, I know, Lord, You're the door. And I know I have life in You, but how long until all of this is over? How long, Lord, do we have to put up with this? How long? They cried out with a loud voice, Revelation 6, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will You refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the Lord said... Rest for a little while longer until the number of your fellow servants and your brethren who are to be killed, even as you have been, would be completed also. How long the Greeks came to Jesus? They said, Hey, we want to see Jesus and Jesus goes, Times of the Gentiles. It's about to begin. And Jesus also said in Luke twenty one, twenty four, speaking of his own people, the Jews, they will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Oh, why do we have to wait? How long, Lord? Why not just finish it now? I really wrestled with that this week. Two things I believe the Lord is allowing time for. Two reasons I believe the Lord is waiting. And number one, and it's a tough one, but we got to get it, it's for sin to fill up. He's waiting for sin to reach the top of the vat. Until it tips. He's waiting for that to happen. He, he says, this is interesting, Matthew 23, verse 32, he's, he's really getting on to the, the Pharisees, legalists. And he says, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. What he's saying is, man, follow through. He had just finished saying, your fathers were the ones who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to them. Fill up the measure of what your fathers have done. It's a cross challenge. Because Jesus is saying, let's finish this. Fill it up. Go to the full measure. But again, we say, "Well, Lord, why not stop it now? Why does it have to fill up? Why does it have to get so full? I I believe part of the waiting is for rebellion to to be fully realized. For the rebellion of humanity to tip the bucket for sinful humanity literally to get to the point of no return. To that place, and we've seen this in the book of Revelation, where no matter what God does, an angel flying into heaven with, a, with an eternal gospel saying, believe in Jesus, believe, flying around and people going, I'm not going to believe. And how weird is that? God's shaking the earth. Signs, wonders, horrors, things happening in that seven year tribulation. All this stuff going on, God trying to get the attention of the world and the world looking up and going, No, we're not going to repent so as to be saved. When it gets to that point, it's the fullness of sin, sin filling up completely for a Christ rejecting world to become completely Christ rejecting. In Revelation twenty two eleven, the book, one of the closing words is let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy, still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous, still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy, still keep himself holy. In other words, let it play, man. Let it play out. God is waiting to allow the world to play out. To allow us to get to the end of ourselves, this world. To get to the end of itself. But there's another clear reason for the wait. You see, Matthew 13, that, that parable we referenced last week, the wheat and the tares. The wheat representing people of faith and the tares representing those who, who do not believe, actually within the kingdom, growing up at the same time. And Jesus in the parable, the, the, the servants of the landowner said, what do we do? Should we go in there and pull out the tares? No, no, you pull out the tares, you're going to hurt some wheat. Let's wait. We're going to wait for sin to fully grow up. And then, we're going to harvest it all and we'll separate it. Waiting for sin to fill up and secondly, waiting for salvation to be fully realized. For the grace of God is such that while He's allowing the world to go as far as it's going to go, He is also throughout all of that time, even and this is remarkable, even in the tribulation period, He is still calling out, come on, let me save you. I will say, yeah, you're going to lose your head for it, but it'll be worth it. <laughs> come, i got a robe for you. Come wait with your brothers here under the altar. What does that mean? Close to me. Near me. For salvation to be fully realized, the Lord is not slow about His promise, Peter wrote. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In the meantime... All we need to know is the Father's intentions. I want to end with this. The book of Zechariah, second to last book of the Hebrew Scriptures. If you want to turn there, Zechariah chapter 1. There's an angel speaking to Zechariah, bringing the message of the Lord to Zechariah, who would be the prophet, the messenger of the Lord. And it's interesting, it's one of those times in Scripture where the angel asks how long. Verse 12, Zechariah chapter 1. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words. I like that. With comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim. Saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. In other words, what he's talking about here is God allowed the nations, allowed Babylon to come in and cart the people of Judah off to captivity. I'm going to allow that as a punishment. And I'm going to use Babylon as the tool for that. But Babylon went way beyond. In their sin, though they were the tool the Lord was using, Babylon went way beyond that in horrible massacre. And that's what the Lord's talking about. They furthered the disaster. Verse 16, watch this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house, the temple, will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. In other words, it's going to spread out again. And he says, Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now that's a prophecy. And it was partially fulfilled in the rebuilding of the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah. They came back and they did rebuild and they did kind of resettle. But never like before. Jerusalem didn't spread out the way this prophecy says it will. So while it was a partial fulfillment in those days, there is a coming fulfillment, and Zechariah, the angel declares that the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. What happened when Ezra and Nehemiah, when they built the temple? He didn't return. He worked through them, but the Lord, the glory of the Lord, never filled the second temple. He never came back and, and filled that with His presence like He did Solomon's temple. So this is a partial partially fulfilled prophecy that will be completely fulfilled in a latter time. What's interesting about this to me is the angel cries out, How long? And God doesn't tell him. He gives no answer. No one can cry out, How long? All day long. And God's not going to tell us how long because not even the Son knows, nor the angels, what the timing of the Father is. Only the Father knows when it's going to happen. So... He doesn't answer how long, but He does say what's going to come when it comes. He speaks, speaks words that are gracious, words that are comforting, and in essence, saying to Jerusalem, but I believe, and Jesus said these words to us, in essence, take heart in this world. Take heart. I will bring to pass everything I said I would. How does God answer the question of how long? He says, look at the end. I'm going to tell you how it's going to end. I'm going to tell you about your salvation. I'm going to guarantee you it's going to be good. It's going to be alright. I'm not going to tell you how long. But I want you to know when it's said and done, it's going to be okay. Jesus said in John 16.33, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, with amazing wisdom and great comfort and graciousness, You have reminded us again tonight that while we don't know the day or the hour, and while we're even aware of the season and the times, the signs that we see, we know regardless of the amount of time, Jesus, that You're coming back. That You will fulfill every promise. That You will bring everything to pass. Father, we know You're coming. And we look forward to that day. And I pray that You will speak comfort into our hearts and our lives knowing what will be, knowing there will be perfect justice, perfect righteousness, that You will make all things right. And in the meantime, Father, walk with us. Jesus, help us with these burdens. As we long for your coming, in Jesus' name, amen.